Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Excellent. My name is Josh Pollard. I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, Today, we're going to be wrapping up our study of the book of Colossians with a section that a lot of people just skip right over as seemingly kind of unimportant. But I assure you, this is the word of God and God never wastes his breath. So we are going to jump right into it. You can go ahead and grab the Bibles that's under the chair in front of you. You're in the front, it's under your chair. And go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. You can find it on page 806. Now this whole section we're studying today is actually just the closing of the letter. The whole thing is all just Paul saying goodbye, which some scholars think is evidence that Paul may have actually been from Minnesota because it took him so long to say goodbye. (laughs) So we're going to read, starting in verse 7. And as we go, I will introduce you to some of Paul's friends along the way. So he starts in verse 7. He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances. They're in prison right now. And that he may encourage your hearts. Pause right there. So we have Tychicus. Tychicus is a high-level church leader. He's a very mature believer. We actually see later in the book of Titus that Paul is planning to send Tychicus to take over for Titus as the leader of all the churches on the island of Crete. So he's a high-level, high-capacity church leader in the early church. Okay, we go on from there. In verse 9, he says, He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Now, you may remember Onesimus from our study on the book of Philemon that we did last May. Onesimus is not like Tychicus. He's not a minister. He is a runaway slave that has recently come to Christ through a relationship with Paul who is in prison at this time. Onesimus, as a slave, was probably very young, maybe a teenager, maybe in his 20s. He was obviously very poor, uh, and so he was nothing like Tychicus. In fact, as, a, as a, a slave, it says that he's from Colossae, but he could have really been from anywhere in the Roman Empire, even beyond the Roman Empire, so we don't really know where he was from exactly. So we see here, though, that Paul is sending these two very different people, this high-level church leader and this brand-new youngster, to carry what would eventually become Holy Scripture to the Colossians, two very different people. We'll go on from there. Now we get actually to the second section of the closing of the letter where we go to the greetings. Okay, And it starts like this in verse 10. He says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, so that's not Jesus Christ, that's a different Jesus. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proven a comfort to me. Now, there are three kind of notable things that pop out of this section. Uh, The first of which is that he says that these are the only Jews that have been working with him. So all the other people that are part of Paul's ministry here are not ethnically Jewish. They're from somewhere else. We have Greeks, we have Romans, we have, in the case of Onesimus, someone from who knows where, really. So they're a very diverse ethnic group of people in Paul's ministry. Now, the second thing that's interesting is this guy Aristarchus. Aristarchus, I don't know if you could guess this, is not a Jewish name. It is a Greek name. In fact, Aristarchus is named after a very famous a Greek astronomer. He's the first guy to give us a model of the solar system with the sun at the middle. 
And he was around 300 years before this. So Aristarchus is like a super Greek guy, which means he probably grew up as a pagan, a Greek pagan, but he's counted among the Jews with Paul, which kind of gives us some hints as to his spiritual journey. He probably grew up as a pagan, converted to Judaism along the way, and now only just is getting to understand the Messiah and is becoming a Christian. So we see some spiritual arc to his story. He wasn't born a Pharisee like Paul. Right? We see some diversity in spiritual experience here in this group. Now, the third interesting thing we see is the mention of this guy, Mark. Now, Mark, also known as John Mark, uh, is mentioned, it's fascinating, years before this in the book of Acts, we see that Mark abandoned Paul on the mission field. It was a huge tear in their relationship. It's one of the more notable examples of interpersonal conflict in the early church. But here we see that Paul and Mark have made amends. And once again, he is called a comfort to Paul. Okay, let's pick up right there. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Okay, pause right there. So you may remember... Epaphras, we learned about in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. Epaphras was the first guy to share the gospel with the people in Colossae. He planted that church, and then he came to Rome to report to Paul what was going on there. And whoopsie-daisy, winds up in prison with Paul. Okay? Don't you hate when that happens? Right? No good deed goes unpunished. So he winds up in prison with Paul, but Epaphras is a prayer warrior. Right? He says he's wrestling in prayer for his church. He's working hard for his church. What an excellent example. Don't you know those people, those prayer warrior people? You see them praying in the lobby all the time. They're in the prayer meetings. They're at the tables after the service ready to pray with people. They're the people that you know if you got something going on in your life, you can take it to them and they say, I will pray about it. And you know they actually will pray about it. Right? We all know those people. What good example they are to us, especially to church leaders. Epaphras was a church leader. Man, I hope I get a reputation like Epaphras, that I am a church leader that is wrestling in prayer for my church, that I am working hard for my church. I want to be like him. What a guy. All right, let's keep going from there. Verse 14. 14 says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Okay, so on one hand, we've got Paul's BFF Luke who's always there with with Paul, doing great ministry work with him, steadfast. On the other hand, we have Demas. Now, Demas is mentioned in a letter that comes years later called 2 Timothy. And in fact, several of these guys are. I'm going to read it to you in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says this in verse 9 and 11. Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So right in this section in Colossians, we have a relationship that is steadfast with Luke. You can count on him. We have a relationship that has been redeemed and is defined by forgiveness in Paul's relationship with Mark. And we have a relationship that is doomed to become a source of pain in Demas. And we see... That even for the apostles, for Luke, for Paul, for Mark, all these guys that are like amazing, that church was messy. Church was real life. They're made of real people. It's not made of heroes. Even in the early church for people like Paul. 
Okay, let's pick up from there. Verse 15. He says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Now, to host a church in your home would mean that you probably have a pretty sizable house. So Nympha is probably one of the more wealthy members of that church, and she's able to provide for the material needs of the church, which is very important. They need a place to meet. And to have those people that can provide materially for the needs of the church is really important. We have 17 Nympha families here at our church that host a house group in their house every week. And we are so thankful for them, just like Paul is thankful for Nympha here. Okay, from there, we get to the last of the three sections of the closing. And it is three instructions that Paul gives to the church there to close out his letter. He says this, starting in 16 to the end. It says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And that is the closing to the book of Colossians. And what I find to be most intriguing about this closing, about this section of Scripture, is that all these people were so important to Paul's ministry, and yet they were all so different from one another. They were totally different. Just in this little section, this little list of people from the early church, we have Romans, we have Jews, we have Onesimus, who's from who knows where, we have men, we have women, we have rich people, we have poor people, we have doctors, we have slaves, we have people that provide for their church in prayer, we have people that provide for their church materially, we have people that have been forgiven, we have people that are going to be a challenge, we have people that need encouragement to stay in ministry, we have people that are writing scripture from a prison cell, and yet all of them are important parts of each other's walk with Christ even though they are so different from one another. Which I think should cause us to ask a question, or maybe just help us to answer a really important question, and that is, what is a church? What does it mean to be a community of Christians? What does it mean to be the church of Christ? And it's a foundational question because it's going to set up the mental framework for everything you do in your Christian life how you understand the church. Theologians call this your ecclesiology, your understanding of the church. It's an important question. If we misunderstand the church, then we're going to dishonor Christ. Just like if you misunderstand marriage, you're going to dishonor your spouse. So we want to get this right. And before you come to Christ, when you come to a church, before you give your life to Christ, you mainly come for information Right? You come to learn about God and Jesus and this idea, this Bible. Who is this guy? Is he trustworthy? You come for information. But once you give your life to Christ, your reason for gathering as a church community, in Christian community with other Christians, drastically changes. It's no longer driven by information. You don't come for information primarily. You come for formation primarily. You come to be shaped into the likeness of Christ, not just to learn about him. And so our understanding of church changes once you give your life to Christ because you realize he is more trustworthy than even you are. And so we gather together to worship that trustworthy God, to hear the preaching of his word that he gave us for our wholeness and for his glory as a little glimpse of the eternal kingdom. That's what church is. It is a glimpse of his kingdom. But there is an issue 
that we need to face in American ecclesiology that we have to wrestle through and work through if we're ever going to mature as Christians. And that issue that we face as a church in America is that we often mistake chemistry for community. There's a pastor named John Mark Homer that teaches on this concept really well. And he says that uh, chemistry is that sense of instant natural connection that validates who you are in the existence of another person that's like you. You know, we have those fast and easy friendships that are built on chemistry. Those relationships that give you what researchers call a sense of belongingness. And yeah, belongingness is a weird word, but researchers are math majors and not English majors. So we just go with it. Now, I don't think that it would be difficult for us all to agree in this room that our culture is built on this idea of instant gratification and easy satisfaction. And because of that, we have been conditioned to seek out an emotional and shallow sense of belongingness through the chemistry we get with like-minded people that are the same age group as us, part of the same consumer group, the same voting block, the same lifestyle, the same hobbies, people that are just like us. And that chemistry, those chemistry-bound relationships train us to value people like ourselves the most because they seem to satisfy, at least for a while, at least on some level, our need for belongingness. But on a deeper level, we value those people because they validate who we are. And so when we come from that world out there that trains everyone to live like that, and we come into the church, we bring that with us, that desire to seek out people that are just like ourselves. And if you think about it, that's a really self-centered way to build a relationship with someone. You know, you like them because you really just like yourself and they remind you of you. That's chemistry. That's what chemistry is. Which is the first of the three ways that I think mistaking Christian, or chemistry for community affects our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church, is that it makes us want people just like ourselves. But friends, the way of Jesus is not like that. He wasn't like that at all. If you look at his life for just like one second, you'll see that he did not just hang out with all the holy, righteous people. You know, he didn't hang out with all the people that were his age group and his hobbies and made him feel great about himself. He hung out with like the people that were the dregs of society. He hung out with tax collectors and and zealots and prostitutes and sick people and broken people and unclean people and outcasts and sinners like you and me. He was nothing like those people. And if that's his life, shouldn't our life as the church of his followers look similar? The great leader of the Reformation, Martin Luther, he says it like this. He says, The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? He's heavy-handed, but he's right. You know, Jesus didn't look for his sense of belonging in other people, he gave them their sense of belonging. He doesn't belong to us. We belong to him. And the way of Jesus is not 
finding ways to satisfy our needs, it is to satisfy each other's needs, like each other's need for a sense of belonging through showing them the love of Christ, whether there's natural chemistry there or not. You know, look at today's verse. Just look at the list of people we went through earlier. Do you think they had chemistry with one another? Do you think that like the slave Onesimus and Nympha, the rich old lady, were hanging out on the weekends knitting or something? I don't know. No, they couldn't be more different. But chemistry is not a foundational aspect of Christian community. Christian community, foundationally, is about valuing even the least among us because we belong to Jesus. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll have it on the screen here. It says it like this. It says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. If you jump down to verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Then if you go to verse 26, he says, If one part suffers... Every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part is honored with it. So church, if the introverts suffer, we all suffer with them. If the new Christians suffer, we all suffer with them. If the young men are encouraged and built up, we all find joy in that. If the older women are cared for and encouraged in their faith, we all find joy in that because we are interconnected. Not because we are the same, but because we belong to the same Jesus. And in Colossians, Paul says it like this. He says, remember my chains because we all carry each other's burdens. If you lack community, Christian community, we all lack Christian community. If you are lonely, we are all lonely. Which is why Christian community is so important that we do it right, that our ecclesiology is strong and clear. Which is part of why we love house groups so much where you are known and you're able to know other people. They're able to be that healthy Christian community much better than just Sunday morning is, where you can just go about hiding. You can actually be known. And if you're, by the way, if you're not a part of Christian community like we're talking about today, we'd love for you to join a house group. You can do it on our website, on our app, or even just talk to the people out at the table there. And uh, they'll get you signed up. And you'll love it. Probably. I'll probably like it. And I say probably because some people, myself included, if I'm honest, which, can I be honest? It's just us here today, right? I'd be honest. Uh, struggle with house groups. You know, I think I'm an introvert. As an introvert, being in this group of people that you know, I don't, maybe I don't know them yet or whatnot, it's not my natural environment really. And so sometimes I struggle. I was in a small group once for a college class where we were going around saying our high points and low points of the day. And it got to my turn, and I was going to say the low point of my day. And you know what I said? I said the low point of my day is probably being in this group right now with you people, which wasn't nice. (laughs) It wasn't nice, but it was honest. So I get it. I get it, you know. It's not everyone's natural cup of tea. It's not always instantly gratifying. It's not always easily satisfying sometimes. And so we're tempted to think that it's just an uncomfortable waste of time. 
And that brings us to the second way that mistaking chemistry for community affects how we experience Christian community. It makes us want it now. It's like Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka. We want it now. I want deep fellowship now. But friendship does not work that way. Humans don't work that way. That's not real life. Perhaps that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 13 teaches us that love is patient. What does Galatians 5 say are the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives as people in our life as a community? What are they? It's love, joy, peace. What's number four? Patience. Patience. Christianity takes patience. Christian community takes patience. A foundational aspect of our ecclesiology is not chemistry, it's patience. Even Aristotle once said, wishing to be friends is quick work, but friendship is a slow, ripening fruit. Research shows that the biggest factor in how deep your relationships are is not chemistry, it's not hobbies, or it's not shared history, it's not race, it's not uh, gender, it's not school, it's not your job, it's just time spent together. That is the factor. Time spent intentionally together with a person. But even then, the average time it takes for an acquaintance to become a casual friend is about 94 hours together. Everyone's different, but that's the average. And then for a casual friend to become a regular friend is about 164 hours spent with that person. And then for a regular friend to become a good friend takes on average about 219 hours together. If you're hopping around looking for community, you'll need to stop hopping if you're ever going to have a chance to find it. But that tendency to hop around to find our people and our consumer group that will satisfy us is so deeply ingrained in us in, as Americans, but it's a losing game, especially if you're an adult. You know, if you're in college and you live in the dorms, you could rack up 219 hours. Eight hours a day with a person takes about a month. If you're an adult with, like, kids and a job and you see these people uh, an hour and a half a week, that will take literally years, years. And that isn't meant to be discouraging. It's just supposed to be real life. One place that we see this play out a lot is in intergenerational relationships, intergenerational fellowship. You know, people want to be with people their own age because that's where chemistry is most likely to happen. It's where you're most likely to have things in common with each other. And this is particularly pronounced in two groups of people, recent high school and college graduates, and recent empty nesters, which makes total sense, right? Because foundational aspects of their community have, they've recently lost them, been ripped away, and now they're starting back over from scratch. And so it's a challenge for them. But their challenge isn't that they don't know enough people their age. Their challenge is that they haven't spent enough time yet with people, new people, to have built those meaningful, valued relationships yet. It takes time. It takes patience. When you're able to have that patience, that time, 
Those intergenerational relationships are so valuable and impactful for our Christian walk. Just in the last couple months, I had two different conversations that went the same way. Totally unprompted, these young people in their 20s came up to me and said, you know, before I came to renovation, what I didn't even realize I was missing in my Christian walk was relationships with older Christians. And now it's so valuable to me. And then on another time, an older gentleman came up to me and said, you know, this younger person, they came to me, they said, I was retired, and they challenged me. They said, you still have so much to give. And because of that, came out of retirement and is now serving their community in a major and serious way because of this young person. And those intergenerational relationships are so good. They're uncomfortable, but we're just not used to it. They're hard work. They take time and patience, which we don't naturally have as Americans. But they are good, and they are necessary, and they are biblical. So check out these instructions from Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. We'll put it on the screen. He says this. He says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger, uh, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Notice that Paul didn't say, everyone get in small groups of people that look just like you and ignore everybody else. He doesn't say that. No, this is a picture of Christian family. This is a picture of biblical community. Think of the older men and women in your church or in your house group even. Do you treat them like this? Do you treat them biblically? Think of the younger people in your church, in your house group. Do you treat them biblically or do you devalue their fellowship because they're not just like you? Let's go back a chapter, 1 Timothy 4, 12. He says this to Timothy. He says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. If you are the youngest person in your house group, or if you are the oldest person in your house group, do not let that dissuade you. Let that be something you're proud of, that you get to be in this really unique place to encourage other people in your group, to be an example to them in your group, don't let it discourage you. Lastly, we can see in Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 6, that we all have a job to do toward one another in intergenerational fellowship. He says this, he says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, which we taught on two weeks ago, and you can look up on our website, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now notice that in Titus, this Titus passage It's all about teaching one another, training each other to be more like Christ. So many of us come to church with the the the, uh, uh, to want to get something out of it for us. That's how we approach it. But Christian community is just as much about teaching each other to get something out of it, training each other to be more like Christ. Which brings us to the third way that mistaking chemistry for community affects our ecclesiology, how we view church, is that it makes us think that it's there to serve us. You know, it's so easy to mistake church as a service provider that we come to as consumers instead of a community of humble servants that you are invited to join into. 
You know, it's a rowboat, not a cruise ship, we say. Look at all the people in the list today from Colossians that Paul lists. Look at what they're all doing. They're all serving each other, right? Paul calls these people ministers, servants, prisoners, co-workers. He says they're wrestling in prayer for one another. They're working hard for one another. They're hosting churches in their houses. They're providing comfort. They're bringing greetings for one another. They're even in chains, all for the gospel, not to get something out of it. You know, you can tell a church is maturing when its people go from looking to be served to being willing to serve as long as they're not treated like a servant to realizing it is an honor to be a servant of Christ because he first served us. There is a really great Hebrew story, old Hebrew story that illustrates this really well. My favorite version of it goes like this. In heaven and hell, there are banquet tables, one long table in each, and they have just the most wonderful food all across the tables, and everybody just sits right next to each other along those tables. This is not in the Bible. Don't worry. This is just an old story. They sit next to each other, and in both heaven and hell, no one has any elbows, And so in hell, everyone tries to feed themselves, but they ain't got no elbows. So they just starve to death, and they suffer that whole time. But in heaven, they just feed the people next to them. And they feed the people across from them, and the people on their side over here. And in that way, they all eat and enjoy the feast, and they're fed. And who cares if you don't have any elbows? Our church is like that. Our church is like that. You see, we are all broken like that. And we all have needs that we really need that are valid needs. And we're all in danger of serious loneliness in our lives. And we're all products of this culture that trains us to value instant gratification and easy satisfaction and shallow relationships. But our church is not organized for you to get from others. Our church is organized for us to serve each other because in that service, we all gain the most and our God is glorified the most. Just like the community of people that Paul mentions here at the end of the letter of Colossians, the unifying factor of our church community is not age, it's not life stage, it's not hobby, it's not race, it's not gender, it's not socioeconomic status, it's not shared history. It is the only unifying factor of Christian community is that I have Jesus and that you have Jesus. That I want to be more like Jesus and you want to become more like Jesus. That I am here to serve like Jesus and you are here to serve like Jesus. What a difference that is from the way the world trains us to seek out self-serving validation. And as a result of that, just like in Colossians, we get this super diverse group of believers. When you have a Christian community that rejects the love of the world, and resist the way the world tells us to behave and embraces biblical fellowship instead, the inevitable outcome is a fellowship of people that are different ages and different life stages and different races and different genders, different abilities, different in every way except for one, that they have Jesus. Pray with me, church. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we belong to you and not the other way around, that we are yours, that you define the church. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, you have softened our hearts to the truth of who you are, and that you have renewed our minds. I ask you to teach us to care for one another selflessly, to serve each other the way that you served us, and in doing so that we would glorify your name and spread the good news of who you are. In your son's name we pray.
Amen.